Heavenly Father, we just come to you today. We thank you for your faithfulness and the season that we're in. You're always faithful, but sometimes, Lord, we lean a little heavier uh, of looking at what's happening with the virus and the response in our society. We just pray, Lord, for people uh, that we know in our families and our congregation. We pray for Michelle uh, as she goes for uh, care right now. I just I rebuke a spirit of fear yes. from her. And I just pray that peace right now would descend upon her, Father, and that you would fill her, Father, with your grace and peace. But also we pray for healing for her body. I pray whatever is the source of this, Lord, we know that there are numbers of strains of flu out there. I just pray, God, that you would protect her. And Lord, I want to thank you. Uh, As we talked a moment ago, many of us have people that are working on the front lines in the medical fields and uh, emergency room, uh, first responders. Uh, We pray for Ivan uh, working with Roche and Quest down in Kansas City. Lord, I just pray for your protection over these people, Lord. I pray that you would stand between them and any harm, any plague, anything that would come against them. I pray that you would surround them with your presence and with your love and with your grace. Thank you for the people that are continuing to work, Lord, that I know some are at home and they're in a safe environment. We have other people like our garbage men this morning uh, that are out there doing work and uh, people that just keep going. And we ask especially for protection and blessing on all of them. We ask you, Lord, today as we look at the book of Daniel to speak to us, God, and make your word come alive. And uh, just let your word be an encouragement. Let it equip. Let it bless us. We ask you, Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. On a lighter note today, I got, how many of you read the Babylon Bee? It's a satirical paper that's put out by uh, Christians. And today they said that churches were raising money for home smoke machines to make worship more palatable in their living rooms. There's a picture of a family sitting there with the steam, right, or this, this mist rising up in their living room. So people have gotten angry at them because they thought they were a serious newspaper and have nailed them. Uh, the other thing, the other big article was that people are complaining on the streaming services that are going out that the drums are still too loud. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, so they're explaining to people how to turn the volume down on their... <laughs> but anyway, I thought that was good. You have to keep a, a, keep a sense of humor uh, during these times. So if you've never gone to BabylonB.com, uh, they have some really funny articles in there, tongue-in-cheek, but sometimes it, it gets you right here, they too. The too. Yeah, they have cartoons, too. Oh, really? Yeah. Christianity Today puts out a humor page once a week. It usually comes out on Wednesday, and uh, frequently pastors, we pass those around because we need to laugh, and there are some really funny, funny things in there. Uh, they had some church signs up. Uh, that were really good uh, about trusting in God and everything. And then underneath it says, but wash your hands. <laughs> so, all right, let's, Babylon B. B? Yeah. And uh, they were actually attacked by some uh, real news services that thought that it was real news. And they were saying how stupid Christians were. And Babylon B got back and says, Christians believe in satire too. Sorry. <laughs> so. All right, Daniel 8. Daniel's vision of the ram and the goat. We're not talking about Dodge vehicles here. 
<laughs> talking about animals in this division. And I gave you three handouts today, the scripture, so we can all be on the same page. And then uh, Ruth Reese uh, gave us a identification of the four kingdoms, tying together not only the first vision of Daniel, but also uh, the, the subsequent visions of Daniel, because they overlap. And uh, Leah found it, uh, she had it in black and white, Leah found it in color. And uh, it's here. I don't necessarily agree with all their interpretation on this, but it's this is pretty close to what uh, I believe. Uh, they get into the small horn grows very large. This is in the third column on the bottom right. Small horn grows very large, replace, replaces three members of a 10-member group of nations, the United Nations, the Western Trilateral Commission. All I have to say as we get into this today, most people over the years have taken a very Western view of uh, Daniel 8, and I don't think Daniel is Western at all. Daniel tells us at the beginning, we're going to read here in a moment, he is in the city of Susa, or Shushan, and uh, we're going to talk about that city and where it is today. We have a color map there also, but let's pay attention. In prophecy, it's very important to see the perspective of the prophet. When we get to the book of Revelation, John tells us where he is. He's standing there among the lampstands. He's on earth, and the lampstands, according to Revelation, are the churches. So John is on earth, and he's looking at the churches. In chapter 3, the Lord says, come up here. And all of a sudden, he's in heaven. You have to take note of the perspective of the prophet. One thing that's interesting about Daniel's vision, a lot of people think he was in the city of Susa. He never says that. He's in the spirit in the city of Susa. So... He's seeing things, but God is giving us Daniel's perspective because the vision is centered in that part of the empire, and I don't think that the Antichrist comes from Western Europe at all. As a matter of fact, we're going to see exactly this ruler that Daniel references is from southern Turkey, northern Syria. It's gone back and forth between the two countries, and that's the city of Antioch. So uh, there's a map here of Antioch. When we get to that, we'll... Find out where that is. And surprise of all surprises, we're told in Ezekiel and Daniel and Revelation that the attack against Israel comes from the north. If you look at where the city of Antioch is, you can't get more north from Jerusalem than Antioch. It's directly in the northern part of Syria, southern Turkey, right on the border, directly north of where Jerusalem is. So... um, just a comment on that. Again, people can read into uh, things. So other than that, that square, the rest of it I, I'm okay with on that uh, example. Daniel 8, it says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, remember this is the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. Remember, uh, the last vision was in the first year of Belshazzar. Now we're in the third year. This is two years later. Verse 2, And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in the Susa, the capital. So Daniel Daniel doesn't say he's in Susa. He says in the vision he's in Susa, which is the province of Elam. The king of Belshazzar is the grandson of which one? Nebuchadnezzar. And I saw in the vision, I was at the Uli Canal. I raised my eyes, and I saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. 
And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. Now Daniel's giving us directions. Northward, westward, and southward. From where? Susa. Where's he at in his vision? Susa. Susa, yeah. No beast could stand before him. And there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. So the year here is probably 549 B.C. This is 20 years before uh, Babylon is conquered by Persia. And uh, we call it the uh, Median-Persian Empire. Really, Medea was conquered by Persia. But Medea still had uh, was a separate province, and that was the province closest to Babylon. And that's why Darius, or Darius, uh, he was uh, Median, but he was part of the administration of the Persian Empire. That's why we name it as a two, um, kind of a two-tiered uh, regime. Daniel is seeing a vision that takes place in the city of Susa. It's also referred to as Shushan. Where do you hear of the city of Susa, by the way? Where else? Esther, Esther exactly. Mm-hmm. This is where, uh, about 120 years later, Esther is going to, that whole narrative is going to take place. So it's quite a bit farther south and east from where Babylon is, okay? So he's most likely seeing in, this, in the spirit. He's not actually there. The spirit hasn't taken him to uh, Susa. The modern Iranian town, there's an Iranian town that's built right next to the ruins of Susa. It's uh, Shush, and it's located on the site of ancient Susa. I have a carpet from right around there. It's uh, on the Turkish-Iranian border, and uh, I love it. It's a 100-year-old Malayer carpet and the interesting thing is it's an Iranian carpet made by Iranians but they use Turkish knots and um, so it's a different the carpet looks different than other carpets but they uh, and they were they're they're rare they're hard to find and um, this area has been an area that's gone back and forth between the Turks the Iranians the Iraqis and a number of different empires over the years so that's why it's interesting that as we look there we'll see that so it's mentioned in the book of Esther in 483, 473. This is when Xerxes, the king, uh, is uh, ruling. And uh, let me make a comment here. We use the word Xerxes. Esther uses the word Ahasuerus. Mm-hmm. And if you read the name in Persian, I couldn't even pronounce it for you. We'd have to have one of our friends from Iran here to tell us about that. But honestly, um, it, it can be confusing because you read these different names and you think, is that a different ruler? It's the same guy. So we tend to anglicize uh, the name Xerxes rather than Ahasuerus, and that's who Esther was married to. Also, if you go another 40 years, uh, you get to Nehemiah, 445 B.C., under Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is... Uh, I think a grandson of uh, Xerxes. So uh, probably that's what his name means, Artaxerxes. So Daniel is already seeing a vision beyond the time of Babylon uh, to the time of the Persian and Greek empires. He's still in Babylon. Babylon has not been invaded yet, but he is seeing a vision to the time. And we're going to see as we look at these different visions of Daniel that they get increasingly more detailed as they go along. God gives him the big picture with a vision that he gives to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember the gold and silver and iron and uh, you know all the metals in that statue. Now he's uh, zeroing in on two parts of this. He's zeroing in on the Persian and Greek part 
of the empire. And the reason why he's doing that is because out of the Greek empire, out of the Macedonian empire of Alexander, comes one under the Seleucid dynasty that becomes the uh, type of the Antichrist. His name is Antiochus Epiphanes. Guess where he's from? Antioch. So that's kind of what his name means. And uh, we'll get to that. Antiochus Epiphanes, along with um, Nimrod, are the two primary, in the Jewish mind, the two primary models for who the Antichrist is going to be. Antiochus Epiphanes comes later. As a matter of fact, he's about 200 years after um, Nehemiah. And uh, we'll talk about him in a moment. So Daniel is is seeing this vision that's going to talk about that. So this city today is located in Iran, but it's kind of gone back and forth between these empires. Notice also the province is Elam. Remember, where do you hear that name? In the New Testament. Anybody remember? Acts chapter 2. Elamites, dwellers of Mesopotamia, they were baptized in the Holy Spirit. They were part of God's outpouring. They were represented that day. And the 17 nations that are mentioned in Acts chapter 2, Elamites were there. So these people from the other side of the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, were part of that. Now the ram, of course, is Persia, or we call it the Median Persian Empire, with Persia being dominant. That's why one of the horns on this beast is bigger than the other because Persia was the dominant force. Medea was just a, a province that had already started conquering and then got conquered itself. Uh, but they kind of absorb, Persia absorbs the Median uh, Empire. Persia expands westward and toward the Holy Land, northward toward modern Iraq and Turkey, and southward toward Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. If you go south of where Susa was, you hit Kuwait. And if you keep going, you're, uh, you're in Saudi Arabia, what is uh, now Saudi Arabia. This is important because as we talk, we're going to talk about where the Antichrist kingdom is likely located. And I believe it's this scripture more than any other that indicates the Antichrist may come from a uh, caliph, a caliphate of the Muslim religion based in Syria or Turkey. And this is where a lot of, uh, not just recent theologians, but I'm talking about uh, people like uh, Pink, who was uh, one of the Baptist theologians in the 1930s. He's not quoted too much because he tended to be racially insensitive, but his stuff on the Antichrist was was pretty good. He writes a lot. Arthur Pink um, locates the Antichrist probably in Syria uh, or in southern Turkey, and we'll talk about that in a moment too. So Daniel's perspective of the vision is important because he gives directions of these forces and how they'll move in the future. Okay? Verse 5, he says, As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and he struck the ram and broke his two horns. Now understand that Daniel is prophesying hundreds of years before Alexander comes. Okay, so this is, we're looking back with eyes from our perspective, but Daniel is looking forward to things that haven't even happened yet. 
Pretty amazing. The ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Let me just say that up to this point, Persia was seen as being uh, unconquerable. Cyrus was seen as one of the greatest rulers, and the people that followed him were seen as, as unconquerable. And Rome never really did conquer Persia. They got that far, and the Persians stopped them. Even though the Persians were no longer the empire they were, they were a formidable fighting force and a former formidable cultural force. But at this point, Alexander comes in, uh, the Macedonian Greek uh, empire comes and conquers, and the fall of Cyrus is so fast, it's about as fast as Belshazzar and his father and the fall of Babylon, that, that whole fall. So it, it happens very rapidly. And then it says this, then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. So let's take time to break this down. A goat comes from the west. What's west of Susa? Macedonia, Greece, Iraq, uh, the Assyri- what was left of the Assyrian Empire. Uh, the Kurds are, are there today. Uh, the Assyrians are there today. Years ago, I met a man from Detroit, and I thought he told me he was Syrian. And uh, I said, uh, oh, I, we had a lot of Syrians and Lebanese people who lived in Youngstown where I grew up. And he said, no, I'm not Syrian, I'm Assyrian. And I said, wow, I said, educate me. So there are still people that call themselves Assyrians. He said, yeah, they live on the border of southern Iraq and northern Syria, and they're a distinct group. Beautiful man. He was one of the most handsome guys. Just, you know, and he looked Turkish and he looked Syrian, but he was different. You could tell because they intermarry and they had been, you know, in their in their culture, they're like the Jews. They try not to intermarry outside. And because of that, he was very distinct. But he said, yeah, people often think I'm Syrian, and I have to tell them the Assyrians are still there, as are the Kurds and other groups that are are part of that area. So obviously, this goat that comes from the west is Greece, Macedonia, in the form of Alexander's empire. Uh, Alexander's rise to power is um, very rapid. Uh, Nothing else fits uh, in this fulfillment, the possibility of the fulfillment of Daniel's vision. The conspicuous horn, the horn represents power. Remember we said in these visions that this horn on the animal uh, represents the power. And uh, Janice and I uh, found that to be very true as we raised goats. We dehorned our goats. And if you have, and one of our, one of our goats did have horns and he had the ability, with, uh, they can knock you out. Their skulls are so thick. And uh, if you don't take the horns off, they are very dangerous. So when they're real little, you have to burn the horn buds to stop them from growing. Yeah, it's sad. The little little goats, the little kids. But uh, one of the compassionate things if you're raising goats today is with, with their horns, they get stuck in fences and die. So we have, the way we raise them, it's good to be without horns. But when a goat loses its horn, it loses its power. And in the wild, a goat can't defend itself if its horns are broken off. So this is what's being represented in this, uh, in this vision here, okay? What does it mean that the goat does not touch the ground? There's something that's supernatural here. So this is not just your uh, everyday goat, but there's a supernatural. And the indication would be that God gives power and authority to Alexander in this hour 
to conquer. And I, and I told you my theory. This is just my opinion. I can't prove it. We'll have to talk to God. But I believe Alexander did more to open up the routes, trade routes between east and west and connect the world. And I believe this is all in preparation for the gospel of Jesus going into all the earth. That's just my theory. We'll find out. So the language here indicates that this was also personal between leaders. There was a real... Alexander had great respect for Cyrus and uh, had great respect for the Persian leaders, but he was ruthless in hunting them down and in embarrassing them. So there was a personal thing. I, that when, he, when he talks about the goat being enraged and trampling, he doesn't just conquer the Persians, he obliterates them. And then he welcomes the Persian to be part of the empire and says, you were under bad leadership, but we're going to treat you better, and gives gifts to everybody. Very smart guy. And uh, he wins them over, and he, Alexander was understood multiculturalism. He told people, you keep your religion, you do whatever you want to do, we're going to give money for your temple, we're going to take care of you, and that's the way he was able to conquer and keep on moving. Now, I do have to tell you this, that bothered the Macedonians to no end, because this was something new. And they wanted to know why Alexander was not promoting his own gods. Why are you allowing them to keep Bel? You know, the god of Babylon. Why are you allowing them to worship this god or that god? So it really bothered them. But Alexander kind of knew how to keep the peace. And uh, at home he wasn't popular, but everywhere he went to the east he was very popular. Uh, the conspicuous horn is broken and four new horns arise. And we know who they are. We talked about that. Ptolemy in Egypt, Cassander in Greece and Macedonia, Seleucus, the Seleucid dynasty, Babylon and Syria, and Lysimachus, in Thrace, which is up in uh, the north of uh, Iraq and Turkey, whatever. So those four generals take Alexander's empire and develop it. It's important for us to pay attention because what Daniel is going to tell us here is that out of those four horns, okay, out of the one, spring up four new horns, four new things of power. And one of those horns becomes the one who challenges heaven itself. And that horn becomes the boastful little horn that we're going to read about. And we're going to read about it later. So Daniel's getting this vision now, but in Daniel 11 and 12, he's going to expand even more on this and give us more detail. And I believe this is referring to the Antichrist. And I'll tell you why. When we get verse 25 of this gives us the interpretation. So we're going to see how well I've done because uh, we're, we're parsing this as we go along. But actually, the angel Gabriel tells Daniel this is what all this means. So we're going to see what he's saying there. Let's move on in verse 9. Out of one of them, so out of one of the four breakups of Alexander's empire, came a little horn. So in other words, it starts small. People aren't really paying much attention, but there's an authority that's being raised up in one of these countries. And it grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. What is south of Susa, and what is east, and what is the glorious land? Let's stop here. Take a look at your uh, map here. You see where Susa is? It's yeah. to, just to the right in the middle of the map. Yeah. Babylon is there to the left, and Baghdad, modern Baghdad, is above there. If you go straight south of Susa... You get Kuwait City, and just below that is Saudi Arabia. Okay, where it says northern borders, that's, that's Saudi Arabia down there. So this little horn 
that rises up is based in this area and it spreads all the way down into Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, eastern Iraq, all the way to Israel, all the way to the Holy Land to the west. He grew great to the Holy Land. This is the Seleucid dynasty. Okay, and eventually it goes all the way to Egypt back in uh, 167 uh, BC. Okay, so this is one of the parts of the former empire of um, Alexander. Verse 10, it says, it grew great even to the host of heaven. There's a spiritual component to this leader. This is a Middle Eastern phenomenon. This is not a European phenomenon. If anything, it's on the far eastern reach of the Roman Empire. Okay? It grew great even to the host of heaven, and some of the host and some of the stars it threw to the ground. What does that mean? There was spiritual warfare related to this kingdom, and even some of the angels were thrown down. Now, Daniel, remember, gives us a clue, and we're going to see it in subsequent chapters, that there are mighty angels that contend for the governments of uh, and leaders of people on the earth. Daniel prays, and we're, we're going to see in a future chapter, Daniel prays for three weeks and doesn't get an answer, and the angel says, I heard your prayer right away, but I've been in battle with the prince of Persia. Okay, and um, the prince of Greece is coming soon. You know, he says that, and it's interesting that there's this spiritual component uh, to what's happening here. But there is spiritual warfare in heaven over this leader in the Middle East. Verse 11 says it became great, even as great as the prince of the host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of the transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking and another holy one said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate? That's the abomination of desolation if you're reading the King James. (coughs) And giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. 2,300 evenings and mornings in a lunar calendar is three and a half years. Where have you heard that number before? (laughs) Okay. Well, you're going to hear it in a a number of places. And um, actually, I had a a video today. Do we have the... um, Cable uh, that's connected to yeah, HDMI. I'll, gra- I'll run and grab my computer in a moment here. And we'll I can do, that. do it if you have a, uh, if you, I can get it set up. If you that would be great. If you, know, if you know what the link is. Or... I, I have the link on my computer. I can oh. just, I'll just, yeah. So who is this little horn who comes up from one of the far, four ports of Alexander's empire? This is generally accepted as uh, the Antichrist. Okay. Uh, notice that as part of Alexander's empire, it will likely not be part of the Western Roman Empire like we've been taught by many of our teachers. And like that little thing that I passed out to you where it says the Trilateral Commission, which is based in the United States. (laughs) And uh, by the way, people say, where does the United States fit in? When we get to Revelation 16 and 17, I'll tell you where I think the United States fits in. Okay? Stay with me. Everybody wants to know. They want to know the answer to Revelation now. 
All right, I will give you one teaser. I believe that there is a rapture of the church that will happen. I am a firm believer of a mid-tribulation, pre-wrath rapture of the church before God pours out his wrath on the kingdom of the Antichrist. And if you read the book of Revelation, Barb was here and she said, Pastor Joe, you have to tell me something. You know how Barb talks. And I said, okay, I'm going to give you homework, Barb. I said, go through the book of Revelation. And every time it says to him who is and was and is to come, I said, look for that. And look for the one time where it says to him who is and was and stop saying and is to come. And go back and find out what happened just before that. She said, okay. (laughs) So she did. She went and studied. And Barb, you're probably listening to this. Uh, I don't know all that you found because we haven't had a chance to talk, but she says, I'm starting to get a clue. I'm starting to understand what this is about. Mm-hmm. So um, are you, is that a teaser? Are you going to come to the Revelation class now? Yeah. You have to. You have to come. <laughs> That's right. Okay. So let's look at the map of Susa, the rounding area, surrounding areas. So if, if we're talking in modern terms, we're talking about Iran, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Iraq, all the way. And this this force would be moving towards Jerusalem to conquer the people of Israel. Is this interesting in terms of biblical prophecy? If you look at Ezekiel chapter 38, there are eight nations, eight ancient nations that are mentioned that attack and destroy uh, or try to destroy Israel. And five of them are in modern day Turkey and Syria. They have different names now, but these are the people groups of that time. So I think a lot of us need to shift our view thousands of miles to the east. And uh, if you've never read the book Islamic Antichrist and some of the others, you may want to consider that. Uh, by the way, uh, the some of the Sunni Muslims and almost all of the Shia, the Shiites, uh, they they have a ruler who is coming at the end of time. He will be the one who appears at the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem for the final judgment. Jesus will be at his left hand and Muhammad will be at his right hand. He is known as the Mahdi or the Mahdi. Uh, People pronounce it both ways. And uh, he will come and rule on the earth for seven years. He will make a deal with the Jews and with the Christians, but he will reveal his true heart during his reign, and he will make everybody worship the true God, Allah. And uh, that's what they believe. And he and they said Jesus will correct the mistakes people have made, and Jesus uh, and Muhammad will go and break crosses off of churches and turn people from the infidel faith to the true faith of Islam. Isn't the, pardon, isn't the he comes out of the earth. Yeah. The Iranians, uh, Ahmadinejad, when he was the president of Iran, built a, it was almost $20 million welcome center uh, in the city where the Mahdi is supposed to come out of a well. They say it's a well or a hole in the earth. When we get to Revelation and it talks about a deceiving spirit coming out of the abyss near the um, Euphrates River, We'll discuss that a little bit, because if you look at this map there, look where the river is. Going down through there, through Baghdad, it goes all the way down to Kuwait City, there in the Persian Gulf. 
this is where all this activity is happening in the book of Revelation. And it also says this is where the angels were bound from the beginning of time that are released to deceive the nations. So uh, we have often been Western-centric in our thinking, and now we're moving towards Eastern centrism, and it's a, a different thing altogether. So uh, this also, this leader has a unique factor that's not mentioned of any of the other leaders. It grew great even to the host of heaven. The host of heaven refers to the angels that serve in the court of Jesus. Generally, they're talked to as the host. In some places, they're referred to as the starry host. Uh, Israel is judged. If you go back, some of the prophets talk about the people of Israel worshiping the starry host. And uh, by the way, astrology is part of that, worshiping the stars, worshiping, because they associated with every star a angel, and there was a worship of the starry host. This is worshiping created things rather than the creator. And of course, we know Satan was the angel that wanted everybody to worship him, but apparently there are other angels uh, that uh, are, are worshiped. And, um, so that's what he's talking about here. There's an angelic component to this leader in his empire. We know, as we'll read more about the Antichrist, that the Antichrist is in league with Satan. Uh, he's even indwelt by Satan. And some of the hosts and the stars are thrown down. Uh, in Revelation, it says that the dragon, who is the one who works with the Antichrist, that his tail sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky, uh, which kind of corresponds with this. Very interesting. Uh, 2,300 evenings and mornings, just under 3.5 years, with jives with the chronology of Revelation. Uh, the Great Tribulation is seven years. Uh, the first three and a half years of that seven-year reign, the Antichrist is rather benevolent, brings a false peace to the earth. The last three and a half years are the most hellish, horrific time on earth when the true nature of the Antichrist is revealed and the wrath of God is poured out on the earth. Uh, many Bible scholars say that this little horn represents a Syrian ruler from the second century BC, uh, a guy named Antiochus Epiphanes. Others say it refers to the Antichrist. I believe it can be both. The reason why I believe it refers to the Antichrist as well uh, is because uh, we're going to see here in a moment that when the angel explains this to Daniel, he says this is for the far future. So it's not talking about the near, nearness, but Antioch, Antiochus Epiphanes is certainly fulfills a lot of these. And um, so let me, just a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes. Let's talk about him. And this is from, uh, I'm gonna read from um, Encyclopedia Britannica and also the uh, Jewish Encyclopedia of Theology, I think is, I don't know if that's the exact name, but um, so he ruled from the city of Antioch. You can see that on the map, I think there. Do we have that on there as well? Maybe not on this one, no. Antioch on the Orontes was an ancient Greek city on the eastern side of the Orontes River. Its ruins lie near the modern city of Antakya, Turkey, to which the ancient, ancient city lends its name. Antioch was founded near the end of the 4th century BC by Seleucus I, Nicator, one of Alexander the Great's generals. It became one of the great cities of the ancient world. Well, what do we know about Antioch in the Bible? It was a, a hub for the 
It became one of the greatest churches, one of the greatest apostolic hubs, a great sending sending church. It's a model for uh, apostles, teachers, prophets meeting together and sending people out. So Antioch was a a, a site of an amazing church. And uh, the the place that it's um, located makes it really ideal. Uh, Paul did a lot of work there. A lot of things uh, flowed out of that city. Uh, let's talk about Antiochus Epiphanes, and this is Antiochus IV. He's also known as that. The king of Syria reigned from 175 BC, and he died in 164. He was uh, killed at the hands of some uh, brothers named the Maccabees brothers, and uh, Judah Maccabees and his brother. Uh, if you know about that, this is where the whole idea of uh, um, Hanukkah comes from. And uh, the, the thing about Antiochus that sets him apart from other rulers, he goes right into the temple in Jerusalem. He defiles the temple with pig's blood. He sets up idols. We think it was probably Zeus or Jupiter that were set up. Some people say Baal, whatever. We're not exactly sure what idol. But he demanded that all worship of Yahweh stop. The Jews had to stop circumcising, and anybody that circumcised their children or followed any of the Jewish traditions were put to death. Uh, He was out to uh, really stomp out Judaism. So when when Daniel says that he grew great to the host of heaven, this guy was on a tear, not just to conquer. He wasn't like Alexander, who said, you can keep your own gods. Remember? Even even, uh, Cyrus and Nebuchadnezzar, all of them said, you keep your own gods. And Cyrus even lets the people of Jerusalem go back and rebuild their temple, rebuild their city, the times of Ezra and Nehemiah. This guy, Antiochus, comes along, totally different spirit. He says, you're going to worship my gods, and we're going to stamp out Judaism. Two governments do that. This uh, Seleucid dynasty that's come from the east And later, Rome does the same thing. Rome literally obliterates the temple in 70 AD. And uh, they plow it under. They knock every stone. It says not one stone will be left on another. Jesus says that in Matthew 24. The Romans fulfill that. And they renamed the city. Uh, They renamed the street. They paved a street right over that. If you go to modern Israel today, uh, you can go and... uh, they have the whole Roman street that was paved right on top of the temple. And you can go through the doors to go down underground, and you can see this Roman avenue that they built with the columns and everything. You go down one level under that, and you're in the temple environs. And it's really amazing. It's history at different levels, okay? So let me read a little bit about Antiochus. He was the son of Antiochus the Great, After the murder of his brother Seleucus, he took possession of the Syrian throne, which rightly belonged to his nephew Demetrius. This anti—he's not a good guy. He's—he's bad all the way around. Antiochus is styled in rabbinical sources and given the name the Wicked. Abundant information—and this is from the Jewish uh, Dictionary of Theology, by the way. Abundant information is extant concerning the character of this monarch, who exercised great influence upon Jewish history and the development of Jewish religion. Since Jewish and heathen sources agree in their characterization of him, their portrayal is evidently correct. Everybody says he was bad. (laughs) Even their own historians. 
Antiochus combined in himself the worst faults of the Greeks and the Romans, but very few of their good qualities. He was vainglorious, fond of display to the verge of eccentricity, liberal to extravagance. His sojourn in Rome had taught him how to captivate the common people with an appearance of geniality, but in his heart he had all the cruel tyrants' contempt for his fellow men. The attempt of modern Phil Hellens to explain Antioch's attitude towards Jews as an endeavor to reform stiff-necked people receives no confirmation from historians. Tacitus, who's an ancient historian, says this. Uh, he's the one that says the Jews were just a stubborn people and Antiochus had to be cruel to them, and Tacitus was wrong there. Antiochus had no wish to Hellenize his conquered subjects, but to denationalize them entirely. His Aramean subjects were far from becoming Hellenes simply because they surrendered their name and some of their Semitic gods. So some of the people that he conquered surrendered their gods, took his gods, and everything was okay. All you have to do is cooperate. What would you do if somebody came to the United States and said we couldn't worship Jesus anymore? Okay, this is what's going on here in uh, Israel uh, way back then. So I, I can give you a copy of this if you want to look at it. There's a lot more here, but it gives you an idea. Let me read at the end here. Antiochus, however, had understood, misunderstood the true character of Judaism if he thought to exterminate it by force. His tyranny aroused both the religious and political consciousness of the Jews. This is when uh, Israel discovered guerrilla warfare, uh, which resulted in a revolution led by the Maccabees. After the passive resistance of the Hasidim, or the pious ones of Israel, who much to the surprise of the Hellenes suffered martyrdom by the hundreds, the Hasmodean Matthias organized open resistance in 167 to 166 BC, which through the heroic achievements of his son and successor, Judas the Maccabee, and defeating two large, well-equipped armies of Antiochus grew to formidable proportions. Antiochus realized a serious attempt must be made to put down the rising, but was himself too busily occupied with the Parthians of the east. And uh, Lysias, whom he had left as regent in Syria, received instructions to send a large army against the Jews and exterminate them utterly. This was a, a genocide attempt. But the generals, Ptolemaeus, Nicanor, and Gorgias, whom Lysias dispatched with large armies against Judah, were defeated one after another. And the Jews will tell you in their story uh, that, they, that, that God was uh, intervened supernaturally. And that's the story of the Maccabees, if you read uh, the, the literature of the Jews. And there's the story about God making the oil last in the temple so that the menorah lights could be lit. And this is why the menorah... Uh, at Hanukkah is such a big deal. It talks about God's supernatural intervention in preserving the Jews through this terrible time. So they could rededicate the temple. They could rededicate the temple, exactly. Because they had to cleanse the temple. Yeah. Antiochus had set his throne up there along with these idols. So we see in Antioch, Antiochus, out of all the history of Jerusalem, nobody that conquered them defiled the temple to this point. This was the worst. He becomes a symbol of the Antichrist at the end of time. If we learn anything from this part of Daniel, we learn that throughout history, Satan has tried again and again to bring Antichrist figures to destroy Israel. And that Antichrist spirit is operating today. The very fact that, and there, we, we all know, let me, I'm not going to be politically correct here. I'm going to be spiritually correct and historically correct. I don't believe in political correctness. Um, 
We know that there are good Muslim people out there that just want to get along and raise their children. But the fact that there are 1.3 billion people in the world that would probably be happy if Israel were obliterated. And people say, well, really, it's only a quarter or a tenth of them. So it's only 150 million to 400 million that want to wipe Israel off the map. And the real problem with bringing peace to Israel, uh, I, I'm not in favor of a two-state solution, but um, there are many people that are, and I think even uh, Benjamin Netanyahu and people in power in Israel, they want a solution for the uh, Palestinians. Who named, by the way, who named, uh, where did the name Palestine come from? Rome. Came from the Roman conqueror who destroyed the Jewish temple. He gave them that name. Uh, and he renamed uh, the country because they wanted to obliterate Israel. So you see in Rome and you see in Antiochus this uh, Antichrist spirit, this conquering and destruction that's there. And that's going to be the spirit of the Antichrist who wars against the people of God. Okay? All right. So he sets up a statue of Zeus or Jupiter, and uh, ultimately he challenges the host of heaven. There's even a spiritual indication here. Uh, sacrifices have to be um, reinstituted, and a new temple has to occur at the end of time. Uh, many people believe that there's going to be a restoration of the temple at the end of time, and the Antichrist will again defile this sacred place. Uh, I don't know that much about it, although if you go to Israel there and you look at the Western Wall as you're coming down the stairs to go on to the, uh, where the Western Wall is, where all the people are um, praying, mm -hmm. there's a thing by the, uh, it's the temple, I forget the name of the group. Uh, the temple, um, oh shoot. Something Faithful or no, whatever. No, it's the, it's the temple... Institute. Temple Institute. Yeah. They have a big glass case, and what they have done is they have reconstituted all the priestly garments. Mm -hmm. They have put together all of all the different the implements to reinstitute the sacrifices. Mm -hmm. They're in a glass case. You can see them, and there's a statement there that they are preparing for the reinstitution of the sacrifices. In the last 10 years, the Israeli Sanhedrin has been reconstituted for the first time 2,000 years. There's a ruling council. One of the things that they are doing right now is certifying who is really part of the Levitical priesthood. And by using uh, genetic testing, they're finding out who is a pure Levite, who can actually serve in the priesthood. Wow. And they're looking for the red heifer. And they're looking for the blood of the red heifer, and there are different things. And uh, so there are different ways to look at this, and I don't want to get involved in that. But it wouldn't take very long to reconstitute the ancient um, Jewish religion that has that gave way to the synagogue religion of Judaism that we know today. Very different from the ancient practice of everything centered in uh, Jerusalem. So, um, and like I said too, this is interesting that Daniel is locating this leader here. If it is referring to the Antichrist at the end of time, that would put um, the Antichrist far to the east of where we have always thought him of being. Yeah. But if Ezekiel 38, some people believe that's a, a, third world, a third world war that will happen before the end, before the Antichrist comes. Some people believe that's the Antichrist. We'll discuss that another time. Uh, but it's interesting that many of those nations, out of the eight nations he memorizes, most of them constitute modern Turkey and Syria. 
So this is why a lot of people think that the Antichrist will come from that region. And uh, so let's project. How could that look? Possibility that there could be a Muslim ruler that finally says we're going we're gonna to create peace with Israel. And in the middle of that peace treaty, uh, actually reveals his true heart, turns on the Jewish people. And this is what the Mahdi is supposed to do. And this is what the Antichrist does in the middle of the seven years. Goes back on his, and uh, at that point declares war on Israel. It's hard for my Jewish friends to talk about this. Because we're talking about another time where destruction comes on the land of Israel. So they don't want to, if you have Jewish friends, they don't want to talk about this part of Bible prophecy. Uh, It shakes them up. It is interesting to me that um, I've heard that Benjamin Netanyahu, the Prime Minister of Israel, has been, they have been studying uh, very closely the book of Ezekiel. And uh, that's been part of a Bible study that I think his father started. And uh, they continue continue to go on, and it's been going on for years. It was about four or five years ago now, Benjamin Netanyahu was at a ceremony in Europe at one of the former concentration camps where many Jews had died. And uh, if you know, uh, it's Ezekiel 37, the Valley of the Dry Bones and the vision of Ezekiel. He said it's hard not to connect Ezekiel 37 with what happened here in the camps. He said, and as we look today at how out of World War II and the destruction of Israel has come now, a state of modern Israel, it's hard not to say that God did not intervene and this was supernatural. He said, but that also asks us, begs us the question, if this has happened, then Ezekiel 38 and the war of nations coming against Israel is not far behind it. And he goes on to talk about anti-Semitism and hatred for Israel. My hard thing right now with a um, two-state solution for Israel, I think that, and most of the Arabs, there are Arab parties that operate in the Knesset, I think they'd be better as one nation instead of two nations and a split Jerusalem. That's my opinion. But my problem with all of this is it's hard to negotiate with somebody that doesn't even recognize your right to exist. And uh, when at, at the Oslo Accords, with uh, Jimmy Carter, or was it Carter? Or no, it was um, Bill Clinton. Yeah, Clinton. And uh, Yasser Arafat, my kids used to call him Yasser Very Fat. Um, <laughs> terrible, I know. Well, Saddam Hussein was so dumb and saying, that's how we cope with the news back then. So <laughs> we need to laugh, right? Yes. Anyway, Yasser Arafat got over 90% of everything he asked for, and he still would not accept right. a solution back then. That's right. Because at the end of the day, he knew that if he gave up the dream of destroying Israel and taking over the land for his people, that the Palestinians would kill him. Mm-hmm. And that's the problem for Palestinian leaders today. They have to sit at a table and pretend, but their people really don't want this. So that's a uh, challenging thing. Ready to move on? Yeah. Any questions or comments at this point? Um, You talked about the Western centric view versus the Eastern centric view. Yes. The difference for the West is we lost when when the church was divorced Mm -hmm. from its Jewish roots, we lost the whole concept of what happens in the East and what happens around Jerusalem is central to the future. We lost that. And so um, if they couldn't participate or couldn't 
believe, couldn't, um, you know, adhere to the uh, the Jewish roots of the church, mm-hmm. then they had to substitute it with something. Yeah. But it was a bad substitution. Yes, uh, you're right on. We lost the whole that root. Not only that, but uh, the Western Church, of course, at that point was in Rome, Roman Catholicism. Right. Exactly. Totally ignored what happened in the Eastern Church, the Byzantine. Exactly. Uh, the Orthodox churches to the east mm-hmm. and the Coptic churches to the south and in Africa. And those churches have a very different tradition and a very different view. And um, I think we all have good points. Some are right, some are wrong, whatever. But um, we need to be real careful how we look at Bible prophecy. So that's, that's very important. I'm going to save that video for the end. So we'll stop this in a moment. We're going to finish up and then we'll watch that video uh, about... Uh, what's happening in the east. So verse 15. Here's the interpretation of the vision. Let's see how we did. Gabriel's going to tell us. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it, and behold, there stood me before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened, and I fell on my face. I had somebody that told me, they said, see, uh, when people are really slain in the spirit, when people fall under the power, you fall forward. Anybody that falls backward, that's not. I said, well, that's nice to read this into the book of Daniel. (laughs) All I know is if I saw an angel as mighty as that, I'd probably fall on my face too. And uh, he didn't know if that was God. I mean, come on. He doesn't have the biblical background of understanding here, whatever. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. This is what convinces me that this is not just about Antiochus. This is about the time of the end. So there is a leader that is a model, a type of what is yet to come, but this is for the time of the end. Verse 18, when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and he made me stand up. And he said, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Medea and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king, that's Alexander. As for the horn that was broken in place of the four others who arose, four kingdoms shall arise and from his nation, but not with his power. So this rise of Antiochus, or this rise of Antichrist at the end of time, is not a political rise, it is with the help of spiritual forces. And Gabriel's going to tell us about that. So here's the interpretation. How did we do so far? Are we doing okay? Mm-hmm. And the interpreter is Gabriel, an archangel. We don't know a lot about archangels. We know that, um, who, are, who are the archangels mentioned in the Bible that you know? Michael. So Michael. we have Michael, who Gabriel. is, Michael's but associated with Israel. Israel. Mm-hmm. And then Gabriel Okay, some people think he's the one's going to blow the horn, the seventh trumpet. I don't know where they got that one, but anyway, <laughs> we'll find out. He's a musician. He's a musician? Okay. <laughs> a little about archangels. Uh, what do we know about them? Not much, although it's interesting. Enoch names a bunch of them. He names seven or eight archangels. And uh, Raphael, and there are a bunch Oreo. of different names. that. Oreo. So that's not biblically authoritative, but all we need to know is that if the Lord wanted us to know more, he would have given us more attention. Maybe he doesn't want us to pay that much attention to the angels. He doesn't want us to worship them or pray to them. 
It's already bad enough. I, I figure Mary's probably in heaven saying, please stop praying to me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I love Mary. The Catholics honor Mary, and that's good. And I mean, you look at the um, Magnificat. You look at the words of Mary and the things that are said. It's, she is honored by God, yeah. and, and she is blessed by God. I have no problem with that. Okay? The Ave Maria, most of it's taken right out of Scripture. Protestants are on this side. They have their own problem. They dishonor Mary. But we're not supposed to pray to her, nor are we supposed to pray to angels. And I think that's why God doesn't give us a lot of information about the angels. There okay. are nine that's choirs for angels that the Catholics, the yeah. all have to memorize the nine choirs of angels. Yeah. yeah. And some of that comes out of the books. Came from? I'm not sure. Some of those come out of the books that we don't have in the Protestant church. They come out of the apocryphal books that were added later. The apocryphal books, by the way, were added after the uh, Reformation. They were added later, and even some of the doctrines that Catholics believe, uh, like the um, uh, Immaculate Conception of Mary, okay, the Assumption, comes in the First Vatican Council, which I think was around 1810, 1812. So some of those are late doctrines. They were added to the church much later. They weren't part of the early church. Let's look at verse 23, because now this is going to tell us a little more detail. He says, and at the latter end of their kingdom, when transgressors have reached their limit. That means basically when God has had it with sin in the world. A king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. And bold face means one who is uh, unquestionably arrogant, somebody without conscience. Okay? His power shall be great, but not by his own power. In other words, he's going to have spiritual help. The Antichrist is going to be empowered by Satan himself. Okay? And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. And the Antichrist will make war against Israel and Christians. The Antichrist spirit wars against both the church and Israel. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hands. He is The Antichrist spirit is a deceiving spirit. It closes the eyes of people to the truth and reality of God and his word. It, and, and we are already in this land, there is a strong spirit of deception that is at work. John tells us in 1 John, the Antichrist spirit is already active, and there are many Antichrists. And he talks about how that spirit is active already in his time 2,000 years ago. Can I ask a question? Yeah, hold on a second. Without warning, he shall destroy many, which means all of a sudden, all of a sudden, the Antichrist is going to turn. He's going to be a deceiver. I think people will like him. Uh, somebody said to me, do you think Trump is the Antichrist? And uh, somebody standing near me said this, not me. They said, hey, there aren't enough people to like Trump. He can't deceive people. <laughs> I said, that's kind of, that's mean. Anyway, without warning, he'll, he'll destroy many. He will even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The Antichrist is destroyed, and he's destroyed by God. Okay, we had a question. Randy? You, you said about spirit of deception. Yes. Um, I'm seeing, or at least this is my interpretation, I'm seeing a lot of deception and a lot of um, misinterpretations or misleading of things that are being said, especially in Washington, <clears throat> and from, from even from both sides. Is that part of that, do you think, or is that just a, a sign of our time? I think it's part of it. I was speaking at a conference many years ago in New Mexico, and I shared a story. 
and 30, 30 to 40% of the group heard a different ending to the story than the other part. And that night, uh, someone, two girls came up to me and they said, you have to tell us, how does your story end? I said, the story I told you today is that the girl was healed and God did a miracle. They said, there are a whole bunch of people that heard you say that that little girl died. They were in the same room. It was on tape. What I said was very clear. That night at the uh, meeting, and this was a meeting, it was a regional meeting for this ministry that we were part of, there was a prophecy that came forth, and it was a condemning religious prophecy. It was not the Holy Spirit. It started, I remember it started with, thus says the Lord, I'm going to burn you with fire. And I thought, this is not going to be good. (laughs) Okay, because God judges us and God disciplines us, but usually God is not out to destroy us. That's why he sent his son, okay? And I I looked at the worship leader and we were going like this, but a significant number of leaders in the room said, this is of the Lord, don't you stop this prophecy. We had a division in the room. And that night I watched in this meeting as people were getting set free, because I called out a religious spirit and I took authority over the meeting. I was the guest speaker. And we bound this spirit. People were in the back of the room where they were foaming at the mouth and growling. I'm not kidding you. And they were just like raging that we were praying for people to get free of this religious spirit. And they said that prophecy was God and God is going to destroy all of you. And they're back in the back spewing this stuff. And it was almost like the Lord put a wall there. They could not go beyond that point. And I asked the, the worship team leader was with me. He was a guy, I think, from Oklahoma. And some of the other leaders that were there, I said, are you with me? And they said, yeah. And I said, we need to pray right now. But there was a religious spirit that had moved in and had been part of some of the ministries there. The Antichrist spirit is religious. Remember that the Antichrist will institute a economic plan that will keep anybody but his people from buying and selling in the marketplace. It will be a religious system because he will demand to be worshipped and he will have a false prophet that calls people to worship. Why is this significant to Daniel? Because Antiochus is different than the other leaders. Remember this? He not only has an administration, he doesn't want to just conquer this country, he wants you to worship his God and he's going to set himself up as the supreme leader over everything. And that's what makes the Antichrist spirit different. Okay, let's finish up. In the latter time of their kingdom, this is the last days of God's timeline, when transgressors have reached their limit. God, in other words, has set a time limit for the earth. Two things influence what God does on his timeline. One is the uh, rebellion against him. There's going to be a moment where all the sin, the sinfulness, the transgressors have reached their limit. The other thing is when all the people that need to hear the gospel will hear the gospel. We had an amazing speaker this year at um, Messenger. And uh, Amy uh, is one of the directors of YWAM in uh, Kona. What's Amy's last name? Amy Ward. Amy Ward. And she shared a world perspective. It's my phone. Okay. She (laughs) shared, I thought it might be Gabriel. I wanted to stop. (laughs) So Amy Ward shares this perspective on what's happening around the world. We're not hearing the news and we needed good news that night. She shared, it was amazing what she shared about how the gospel is going throughout the world like never before. For the first time in human history, every 
people group that has not heard the gospel has been adopted by a ministry. And what did she say? By 2025, by 2025, every people group will have the gospel in their language. Virtually the entire world will have a witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. A hundred years ago, we were nowhere near that. I believe the Pentecostal revival in 1906 was the beginning of the last day's outpouring of God pouring out his spirit upon all flesh. I believe we're still in that. We're seeing waves. And there's another wave coming. I think we're on the crest of that wave right now. It's happening even as we speak. And we need to press into that. But God is doing amazing things. And uh, so the two things are coming together. The wickedness of man. We're seeing wickedness like never before. But we are seeing the gospel go around the world. And we're seeing people reached as never before. These two streams are happening. And we told you this. We've had prophetic words for the last 20 years. The wicked will become more wicked. The godly will become more godly. The church, the true remnant, will rise up. The wicked people of the enemy will rise up. So don't be surprised when you see these things happening. Okay? Uh, this king of bold face is one who will understand riddles and mysteries. In other words, he is a man of intrigue. A lot of people interpret this as he will be uh, tied into the occult, that he will be a mystic ruler who taps into spiritual forces that open the door to Satan's um, possession. His power will be great, but it will be another source at work in him, is what it's saying here in Daniel. He will cause fearful destruction, and there will be a war against the saints, the people of God. He will be cunning and be a deceiver. Without warning, there will be a rapid change in his destructiveness. And this jibes with the Antichrist, who at the middle of the seven-year period, he starts out as a pretty good guy. Remember, some of the world dictators have made trains run on time, made the economy go well. All these things happen, but they were also evil people, and the Antichrist is going to bring those together. And then the Antichrist and the Mahdi, and we're going to watch a little video after this, and I'll send the link to those of you that are listening to this uh, online. We'll, we'll give you the link. It's a YouTube link that you can watch from CBN. So he finishes in, in verse 26 and 27. Gabriel gives Daniel these instructions. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true, but seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. This is the prophetic flu, by the way. And then I rose and went about king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. So Daniel receives the vision like a good prophetic voice. He, like the UPS guy, he delivers the package and walks away. We understand a lot better today what Daniel was talking about than Daniel saw in his day. But you can imagine how overwhelmed he was and how amazingly precise. In the chapters to come, as we look at Daniel, the next chapter we're going to see is the uh, prediction about the coming of Messiah. It's one of the most exciting, precise prophecies in the Bible. So you can read Daniel 9 and 10 if you want to get ahead. Uh, be ready for next week. If by chance uh, we are asked to close down everything, we will even try to live stream this. We'll let you know we're adapting as we go, and we'll, we'll contact you. Uh, hopefully we can still meet next week, and we are under the limit of number of people here because some have stayed home, so uh, we are complying. But I'm so glad you're here today. And for those that are listening to this uh, later uh, uh, by tape, we, you are in our prayers. We're thinking about you. As I look out over the room, I see you sitting in seats even though you're not here. And uh, we love you very much. So we're going to do all we can to stay connected. We're putting out a uh, statement later today. 
explaining how to connect and how to do services and some of the online prayer opportunities and online teaching opportunities that we're going to have. So stay tuned and check our website for the latest details at riverlifecommunity.com. Love everybody. Let's just pray a blessing and uh, we'll end the session here. Father, thanks so much for your word. Lord, when I read your word and I realize that you are the only one that knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. You are the timeless one. You are the Alpha and Omega. Lord, you can proclaim the future because you are the one who saw the future in the history. And uh, Lord, that doesn't make sense to us because we're not eternal. We're finite beings. But we thank you, Lord, that we know there's a God who is our rock. We can stand firm in you and know that you have all things under your power and under your grace. We just bless you, God, and we worship your holy name. Lord, I pray that you would bless all those that are hearing this. I know there are many uh, that aren't even part of our church community. There are people out there on the Internet, wherever they are. I just pray encouragement, peace, blessing, favor. I pray even the words of this book of Daniel would bring faith to our hearts, God, and that your hand would rest on each one in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.